And thank you all for giving to our church this morning. Thank you all for worshiping with us. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 25 this morning, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and we'll realize it has a very, uh, a very important uh, weight to it uh, on top of just being an awesome chapter of, of the Bible. Uh, Matthew 25, we're going to begin reading in verse number 14 and read uh, through verse 19 to get us started. Uh, we'll be turning... Uh, to Genesis chapter 1 at some point in our message. So if you want to put a bookmark there, not like you really have to because it's pretty easy to find, right? Unless you have a Bible with a, with a really big introduction and a lot of different notes at the front. It's pretty easy to find Genesis 1. So no big deal there. But we'll be anchoring our conversation around Matthew 25 and we'll break really the whole chapter down before we conclude today. Uh, but I love the way this, this parable, Jesus telling a parable, I love the way he sets up this parable and the way he tells uh, this story about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew 25, verse number 14, Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered or entrusted his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. And he, when he had received, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he would receive two, gain two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. After a long, long time. Have you ever been using something that wasn't yours? or maybe you've been somewhere, you're at someone's house, or you're at somebody's place, or on their property, and you're using something that they have that belongs to them. Uh, and maybe you weren't on your best behavior, and I know you're always on your best behavior, but that one day you weren't, and you were using something that belonged to someone else, or you were doing something with somebody else's things or stuff that didn't, you know, and they weren't there. Uh, and maybe you thought you had the permission to do what you wanted to do with their stuff, and maybe you thought you had the blessing to do what you wanted to do, or maybe the way you did things on your own terms, you kind of assumed that everyone else kind of had the same rule of life or the rule of thumb. Uh, and, uh, but all of a sudden, uh, the owner of the possession or of the property or whatever, uh, they show up or they enter the scene or they get home or they arrive wherever you are. And uh, you can kind of tell as soon as they walk in the room or as soon as they pull in the driveway or as soon as they're in the building or on the property, you can kind of tell by the look on their face that something wasn't right. And maybe it dawned on you that you were the something that wasn't right, or you were the someone that wasn't doing as maybe they would have liked you or expected you to do. Now, I think we can all relate to that experience because we've all been somewhere where we presumed that we could get by with the way we do things at home, or maybe we just didn't care and we were just doing whatever we wanted to do. I don't know. But I think we've all been in a situation before where we thought we could behave one way with somebody else's stuff and all of a sudden it dawned on us that, hey, that's probably not how it should be, and they're not happy about it. And, and I'm sure you didn't mean anything by it. You didn't go there to do something that violated or upset somebody. You just kind of were doing what you thought you could do. And uh, I, I know that everybody 
every one of you have your own set of rules for your home, your property, for your jurisdiction. Um, so I'm sure some of the examples that I may share with you, you may think they're disrespectful or you may think that uh, they're too harsh. I don't know. Uh, but again, it, we're all raised differently and we all have different values and we all value things differently. So again, some of my examples might be things that you think that's kind of silly or, hey, that's really ridiculous. How, how in the world did you think that was okay? Um, so if I say something that makes your skin crawl or makes you roll your eyes, it's just another Sunday, right? Ha ha ha, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't usually, I'm not usually that mean. Um, but I'm trying to cast a broad net and I might even be embellishing a little bit, but I'm not lying. I'm just trying to tell some, trying for dramatic effect. So um, I, uh, growing up, um, we always had a lot of cars in our driveway at all times. So if you, if you know kind of my family complex, you kind, of, you, you kind of can picture this. If you haven't ever been to my parents' house in, in our property, this might sound really weird. But growing up, there was always a lot of cars in our property, um, and there was always a lot of people kind of pulling off the driveway because we just had a lot of people that were on the property at all times. Uh, and my parents' house kind of sits in the middle of a complex of other homes in the family, and there's lots of buildings because my, my dad has a, a cabinet business. So there's a gravel driveway behind the house, and there's, there's buildings all over the property and there's a pool at my grandmother's house so we're all the time kind of you know my parents house was kind of the center of the property complex um, so growing up there were cars all over the property I mean you know people were always driving I mean you know, you go there now better watch out because somebody might just be driving through the grass and driving around the house and you didn't expect them to come right and it's it's kind of it's kind of wild sometimes uh, but uh, and as you might expect and th this might make your, your skin crawl a little bit if you're really if you really take pride in your in your you know uh, landscape and all this stuff. But as you might expect, because of all that, and, and again, nobody, it's not like that we don't care. It's just kind of part of how we, we lived. Um, the, the grass in the yard was never a precious thing growing up on the Hauser complex. It's just kind of what we, you know, we didn't put a lot into it and, and we didn't really think a lot of it. If you got to drive through the yard and, and across the gravel to get to the height, you just do. I mean, you know, again, that, you might think that's crazy, but that's just kind of how it works uh, up, 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 up where, where I was brought up. Now, if you come to my parents' house, you're liable to see cars kind of parked everywhere and, and driving from one place to the other is just kind of how it works. Um, now, again, I'm making it seem a little bit more crazy and messy than maybe it actually is, uh, but, but I didn't grow up with, uh, with, again, with a lot of reverence for landscaping and, and yard work, and, and you may say, well, that's the most important thing, and, and maybe it is to you, um, but I didn't grow up with a lot of awareness that, you know, hey, you know, you know landscaping and, and, and yard work is, is a very, you know, sacred, precious thing to people. Um, so, uh, you know, again, a lot of money goes into it. I'm aware of what we put into it at our, at our church. So, you know, as I've gotten older, I, wow, we, you know, it takes a lot of effort to make things look nice, you know. Um, here at our church, you know, we have a, a great, you know, landscaping crew that does a great job. So very, very respectful of that. And, and I always was brought up, you know, my parents always taught me to respect other people's stuff. So it wasn't like I just went to people's homes and just drove through the yard or something. I wasn't that crazy or re reckless. But, um, you know, growing up, I would know that there were certain people's homes and certain people's property that when you went there, you know, the yard was like lava. You didn't touch it, right? Uh, you know, if you pull in their driveway, you make sure that you stay on the driveway or you don't pull off unless somebody says, hey, you can pull off, or unless somebody's out there saying, hey, do this or do that. Um, so, you know, woe be unto you if you wake the beast that may live somewhere where that is the case. And again, if that's your thing, that's your thing. That's just kind of part, part of wasn't really my deal. And hey, do you just, just be nice about it. Um, but uh, when I got older and I started helping my, my dad and, and working with our, our cabinet business, um, I was always very careful uh, when I would 
drive into park driveways and, and with trailers. Um, and we were usually, and we're usually on, on job sites that there's not even any grass sowed. So you're just trying to stay away from mud because you don't want to get it on the highway. So a different kind of awareness, but something that I had to be aware of nonetheless. Um, we're rarely at homes where the grass is already sowed and, and all that stuff. Uh, there was one time though, and it really sticks with me. And, and again, I, I'm probably too sensitive to stuff. I don't, I don't get over things very quickly, I guess. Uh, but there one, it was one time when I went to a place down at the lake when I was taking some molding to a house that was way past done. Um, and I was in a development, super busy, a thousand cars coming in and out of every driveway. You know, So if you've ever been in that scenario, you know that you just kind of kind of find a place where you're not going to hit someone and they're not going to hit you. Um, so I pulled behind another vehicle that was parked on the side of the road, you know, three feet into the, the you know, the side on, on the grass. Um, and I, I assumed, wrongfully assumed that I was on the person's property that I was taking the stuff to. Uh, but when I got back to my truck, um, there was someone waiting at my truck that lived in the house next door that was very upset. And, and again, hey, that's fine. Very upset that I was parked on a three by eight stretch of his property. And he gave me a pretty, uh, you know, kind of a mouthful, you know, kind of a, a colorful mouthful about what I did to his grass and what I cost him and all that stuff. And I said, hey, listen, doesn't look like I've damaged anything. It's not been raining. I just thought, hey, I was doing this and I was pulling behind that car. And he didn't have, oh, not happy about it. Just continued to kind of give me an earful after earful after earful. After about five minutes of getting kind of chewed out, I was like, well, I'm going to go. Um, I'm sorry, I'm probably never going to see you again. If I do, I hope that it's better than this, but I'm sorry. I don't think I messed your grass up. It's the middle of winter, right? Uh, the grass is dead. I don't think I messed your grass up, but I'm very sorry. And I promise you, I did not do this to make your day this bad. And if you're sitting in your house, looking out your window, that worried about it, maybe you need to breathe a little bit and think about your life choices. Now, I didn't tell him that, but I kind of wanted to. Um, but I, I wasn't as well with my words back then. Um, but again, God bless him. Hey, that's fine. It was his right to be a little bit controlling over it. Uh, but I grew up, and again, I, I, could care, I could care less. I mean, you could come to my house right now, and you could do donuts in my yard. I'm not going to get mad at you. I mean, that's kind of rude, yeah. But, you know, if you do it, and you said, hey, you know, my, my yard right now, I mean, dad's worked on it a lot. My yard right now is a mess. If you do donuts in my yard, you're probably not going to get out of it. So, um, hey, have at it. But if you come to my house, and, you know, I'm not going to be standing outside saying, oh, what are you doing? Yeah, but if, if that's you, then that's you. Just Let's try to, try to be nice to each other, right? But I have a very passive approach to that sort of thing, whereas some people are very, very possessive. And I think that's kind of how it works for most of us, right? Some of us are very possessive over certain things, and some of us are very passive over certain things. And the things that I'm possessive over, you're very passive over. The things that you're possessive over, I'm very passive over. And there are some things that I used to be possessive over that now I'm a little bit less, and vice versa. It's just kind of how it works, right? Um, now, one thing I am a little bit, a little bit, eh, you know, ill about sometimes is I have a lot of electronics and some of them are expensive and they might not be expensive. They might just mean something to me. Um, but uh, I, um, as a kid, I used to always just touch all my stuff with whatever was on my hands, right? And then I got older and I realized that was 
crazy and I had to start paying stuff for myself, right? And I was like, I can't touch this with greasy, dirty hands. You know, you ever go into like Best Buy or to Walmart and you look at the kiosk of, you know, the demo stations of whatever and you look at the stuff, the, the, the controller or look at the keyboard and you're like, what is going on? I mean, what are people doing with their hands? Now that's the product of like a hundred hands touching it. But in my head, one person touched that with some stuff on their hands. So I'm very paranoid of getting stuff dirty. And, and again, that, uh, you know, talk about the grass, but hey, that's just me. It's like somebody takes a wrapper out of a KFC bucket and just rubs it all over the stuff. So I'm very, very worried about that, right? Um, now, that's, that, that's just kind of me. Now, if you're at my house and you, you ever find, this is kind of gross, but I, I sometimes I'll just kind of keep a paper towel that's kind of damp with me because if I need to wipe something off before I use it, wipe my hands off, I just want to, because I'm just real, whew, you know, I want to touch something with nasty hands, right? And Lindsay's like, why are you leaving paper towels laying around that are wet? I'm like, ah, you know, never know when you're going to need one, right? Um, you know, because I just don't want to touch something that's, uh, and that's probably the only weird thing about me. So I just kind of, you know, if you're worried if there's more stuff, that's the only thing that's weird about me. So don't worry. That's, I just told on myself um, for that we'll talk about today, right? Um, but uh, that's kind of irrational to me, right? That's kind of possessive of me. And most of the stuff, nobody's ever going to touch but me anyway. So why am I worried about it? Um, now, I think a lot of us, we change over time, right? You know, circumstances kind of make us more possessive than maybe passive and vice versa. Uh, when I was still living at my parents' house, you know, my, my, my sisters were always there. Their, my nieces and nephews were always there. When I lived in my, my old room, my parents' house, my nephews were always in and out of my room. So I kind of was a little bit, care- I kind of had grew to be a little bit more passive of my stuff. But when when I moved out and I was living on my own for a while, it didn't take long for me to become very possessive over things that I used to kind of be less less about. But thankfully, the pendulum has swung back the other way because now I've got a, uh, a baby with slobber at all times all over her and me. So I'm just, yeah, hey, it's just going to get wet. That's just part of it, right? It's going to get dirty, but that's okay. Um, but, uh, and, and I'm just getting started, right? We're just, we're just getting, I'm just eight months into this deal. Um, but when it comes down to it, it's really all about humility and graciousness with how we handle everything everything. You know, being, being real possessive, uh, being possessive requires a lot of energy that kind of drains you of whatever joy you got out of something or you get out of something. Being real controlling over it kind of takes that joy away. Um, but uh, at the same time, being real passive over stuff that means a lot or is worth a lot, it's kind of a little bit careless of, of, of yourself, right? So I know that everybody kind of has their opinion about why you should be or, or shouldn't be a certain way. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, and this comes into, comes into conversation with the church is, you know, a lot of us, you know, a church has is, is got a lot of people who contribute to it. And sometimes, you know, everybody values things differently. So when you're in a part of a community where everybody is pouring into it and everybody is investing into it, um, everybody has a different opinion about what they should be possessive over or passive about, right? And at different points in your life, if you've got kids, you don't have kids, you used to have, right? You kind of have a different approach. And that's kind of the ebb and flow of life. And the reality is we feel entitled to that which we've invested in, right? And a piece of us goes along with that investment. So no wonder we want to take care of things. No wonder we want to be, uh, you know, in control of things. And, And that might explain why it may come across that we care too much or we care a little bit aggressively. Maybe that's the right word. Uh, caring's important. But what I've learned uh, is how we care reflects who we care most about. So the tone that we care with, the way we address people that we may be upset about how they use things or how they aren't using things, that tone and the way that we care reflects who we really care most 
about it. And, and that's why we're having this conversation today. Uh, because we discovered last week that, and we determined pretty emphatically, that if we have any amount of faith in God, I mean any amount, if you believe in God as your creator and as your maker, if you have any amount of faith in God, we cannot claim any amount of ownership over our lives and anything in them. And you may say, well, I don't know if I'm ready for that, Justin. Go back to last week and we'll catch up. But, but I, think, I think we all can agree on this just from today. If we have any amount of faith that God is our creator and that God is our maker, how in the world can we claim any amount of ownership over our lives in anything that he has given us? Because if God's our creator, if all things came from him, he is in total ownership over our lives. We don't just partially belong to him. We are totally his. We belong to him. We are not our own. And, and, and Romans 14 takes it a step farther and puts it this way. For none of us lives to themselves and none of us dies to ourselves. So to put it bluntly, we came from God, we live for God, and we're going to go back. To God one day. Now, if you're not a believer, you might can wiggle your way out of this. You might can ignore this. But if you are a believer, if you have any measure of faith in God, ignore it, dismiss it, but you can't escape it. Our lives are from God. Our lives will return to God one day. So we brought in this terminology that we're very familiar with in our culture. This idea of borrowed, this idea that uh, of our lives are on loan from God. We are borrowed from God and we all have a return date. If you check a book out from the library, you rent a video from the video store back in the 90s, right? It has a due date. All of us, we are borrowed. We are on loan. We came from God. We are going back to God. If you read the whole Bible from God's earliest efforts to engage and maintain relationships with people, you can see that he was constantly trying to instill this mentality and this frame of mind into humanity. Yet they, like we still do, they resisted it. When God rose up Samuel to be a prophet and judge over Israel, he sent a message to Israel. They paid no attention, and they rarely paid attention after that. Which begs the question, if it's so obvious that we are made by God and belong to God, if this is such a core Christian idea, why do we resist it so much? Why is it still part of our nature to be possessive over things that don't belong to us? Why is it part of our nature to be passive over things that belong to God? Why are we naturally inclined to cut God out of the picture when we consider what to do with what doesn't belong to us at all. Well, in the beginning, there was a fall. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and they believed the lie that they were not accountable to God. They were not created and called by God for God for their own good. They believed the lie that the enemy told them. And, when, and that's where it all fell apart. They began to entertain the reality where they were their own gods and thus masters and owners over their own lives. But from the very beginning, that wasn't the case and that is not the case. But it's why we become so possessive over certain areas and passive over other areas. We really only care to the extent that it may benefit or cost us but the reality of it is that we are creatures made by God. 
and given a life on loan from God. And we are given things that belong to God. We should not. We should not be possessive over things that don't really belong to us. But we also can't be passive over things that belong to God. So is there some other approach to take? If nothing really belongs to us, but everything really belongs to him, we can't be possessive and we shouldn't be passive. What are we to do as we think about how to live our lives? We can't be careless, but we also can't only care when it matters to us. There's a better approach and every believer must adopt this approach. For us, as Jesus followers, as Christians, considering the question, should life, what would life be like if we live from a place that everything belongs to God, borrowed from God, alone from God, it, that's not an option for us. It's a necessity. It's an obligation that we must consider. If we want to make our lives count from God, of course you do. If, you, if we want to make our lives count for God, if our lives don't count for the one who gave us life, then what will they count for? That's a good question to ask your non-believing, your unbelieving friends or your friends that left the church or left Christianity or you know, don't believe anymore, claim they don't. If our lives don't count for the one who gave us life, what will they count for? It's a pretty heavy question to entertain, isn't it? Especially if you don't have an answer for it. What will happen when they return to the one who gave us them if it's revealed that they were not lived in honor of him? Built into the creation story. It's not a license to develop this possessive attitude over that which isn't ours, but also not in a, a way to, get, to opt out and be passive or not care at all. But built into the creation story where God created all things is a creation mandate. We know that God created, but we also know that in the creation story, God mandated how we should look at this life. And if, if you want to flip back to Genesis, we'll come back to Matthew, but I want you to look at two verses, and I want you to see them with your own eyes in your own Bibles. Um, Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15. Uh, chapter 1 of Genesis is told from a very top-down level. It's just God going through the order of creation. He gets to people, and he says, hey, y'all are the center of it all. Y'all are made in my image. I've got a special mission for y'all, and I've given you the land, and I've put the animals underneath your rule, and I've given all this to you so that you might do something with it. Not to possess it and not to be passive about it, but to do something specifically with it. And then again in chapter 2, God is more specific about what his commandment was to Adam and Eve, but I think we can break out of that and see how that relates to all of us. So two verses I want to read to you really quickly. Uh, one from chapter 1, verse 28, when God made the first two people. It says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the sea, over the birds, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that, that phrase, have dominion over it or subdue it, literally God sent them to an unknown land, to a brand new world on a mission. You're made in my image. I'm sending you here. I'm placing you here for my glory for my purpose, to build up a world full of image bearers like you, you are to dwell on the earth. You are to glorify me with your lives. Literally, the Hebrew there is plant your flag in the ground, plant my flag in the ground, and honor me with your life that I just gave you. So built into the creation story, early on, before there was ever a fall, before there was ever commandments, is this creation mandate. 
Fill the earth with my image. Subdue it for my glory. Your life is yours because I gave it to you. Make the most of it. Now, in chapter 2, specifically, God places Adam and Eve in a garden, and he gives them instructions about what to do in that garden. 2.15 says, The Lord took man and put him in the garden to tend it and to keep it. To tend it and keep it, as in take care of it and use what I've given you in consort with that creation mandate. Honor me with this life. So God made Adam and Eve what we call stewards over creation. This is why they were accountable and responsible. And when they fell for the lie that they did not owe God anything or did not belong to God, it all came crumbling and tumbling down. Not just on them, but on the entire human race. And having come to life in the aftermath of their fall, we have a nature like them. We have a fallen nature that shirks as in, hey, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to, I'm ignoring it. I'm going to put, put off that shirks our stewardship, that shirks our responsibility. It may be possessiveness as if we are God. It may be passive as if nothing matters at all. Life is meaningless but it's a nature that resists that stewardship that God has called us to, 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 to live with. But life has a great meaning. In our life, your life matters a great deal for the kingdom of God for eternity if we embrace the stewardship and seek to honor God with our borrowed on loan life. From every step we take to every word we speak to every choice we make to every action we take in regards to what God has given us, you know, this is why, and, and sidebar, of course, I'm going to say this, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor. This is why the local church is so crucial in holding us accountable and reminding us of stewardship because left to ourselves in our own busy worlds, we will forget this and we will become so autonomous and so independent and so nobody tells me what to do with my stuff and I'll do what I want to do with my stuff because it's mine. But thank God that we can be a part of a community of other image bearers that reminds us, that prevents us from mismanaging this crucial reality. This is one of the most serious conversations that we can have as a people because it's, the, it's through the church that we become aware that God was so committed to redeeming us from the potential obscurity and waste that he came personally to save us, to buy us back from sin. Can you imagine? Can you imagine paying for something that already belonged to you? But because sin dominated humanity... God created us, yet sin had infected us. Jesus came and died to buy us back, to redeem us from sin. Already made in his image, but sin had messed that up. He came and gave his blood for you and for me to buy us back from that original sin. The sin that causes us to push away our stewardship, he died to free us from and bring us back to him. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, you are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price. Can it get any more specific than that? Glorify God in and with your life. So Christian, we are without excuse. We are under a clear and pressing responsibility. In fact, the last sermon Jesus ever preached that we turned, open, turned to in Matthew 
The last sermon he ever preached was on this very subject, pertaining to why he was dying and his death could change our lives. Now, there's a lot of perspective you can, uh, you, you can look at from you know, why he died and what he died for, but it's undeniable that a, such an important part of that is this. Jesus' death and resurrection brings how we live our lives into question and examines our priorities in light of his purchase, his purchase for us and of us. So Jesus told a parable that addresses all of us, whether we realize it or not, acknowledge it or not, or aware of it or not, that we are stewards of God's gift, the gift of life that he has given us. Jesus doesn't say that this is something that we sign up for. He says that every one of us are held accountable to this reality based on what he did for us on the cross. So these attitudes, that it's all mine, or that attitude, what's the use? If you're on any, any area of those extremes, if your tendency is, well, it's all mine, nobody's going to tell me what to do with my life. It's mine. If that's your attitude, or if you're somebody that just kind of has a laissez-faire, I don't really care, what's the use? I'm just kind of floating through this life. If you're somewhere on those extremes or anywhere in between, floating back and forth, those attitudes cannot persist in light of the purchase that God has made for you. Jesus frames this new reality about what life is like under the reign of God and the kingdom of God. And he tells several parables, but the last one he ever told is what we read to begin our time. Now there's a catch. In this parable, the master lines up every servant, just three in the story, but he lines up his servant and he divvies out his property one by one to each servant. It says in verse 14, back in Matthew, that the master was traveling. He called his servants and delivered or entrusted his goods. So underline his goods. They belong to the master. He delivered his goods to them. And it says that he gave each, he gave a different amount or a different measure of goods to each one of the servants. And then he went away. Now there's a catch in the parable as he lines up his servants. Here's what we need to remember. That servants in the ancient world were not volunteers. They themselves belonged to the master. Does that make sense? They weren't volunteering. They belonged to the one called master. Now, in our case, when our lives are born, as we go through our life, a trumpet does not sound every moment that God gives us something because that would require a constant alarm going off. From our first breath, every moment we are blessed with the gifts of God, from the miracle that keeps our bodies functioning, every moment of our lives is a reminder that we belong to him. But, but Jesus is telling this parable because we aren't reminded by this life that our life belongs to God. We are tempted by this world to believe the lie that we don't answer to anyone and our lives exist in a vacuum. But these two verses from Matthew 25 may be the most important verses you can hear as you take a step into any given day because we are stewards of God, servants of God, endowed with God's gifts if we take this and stretch this out and consider every possibility that could include, it could include, ultimately this message is that all of us carry around a piece of God with us. Now think about what we learned from Genesis. We are made in God's image. We are made in the image of God. And it says here, the master went on a, far, on a, on a journey and he called his own servants and delivered or entrusted his goods, his property to them. You know what the message is? 
Not only are we made in his image, but we are granted his property. We have been entrusted with a fragment, a piece of God's glory. From every day to every opportunity to every treasure, God has shared his glory with us in a form that we, can't wrap our, that we can wrap our arms around. But here's the test and temptation that's built into, every, into this reality. It says there in verse number, uh, it says there in verse 15 that immediately he went on a journey or, or literally he went away. Now we know that God never really goes away, but he's not always present in a constant reminder nagging us, hey, did you not know that, I belong, that you belong to me? Did you know that you are not your own? Did you know? I mean, you don't have God's voice in your head saying that all the time. And God forbid you don't want my voice in your head saying that all the time. That we can get through life and we can forget that our lives belong to God. We are tempted by every moment of every day. We are tested by every day to forget that. But this, this frame of mind that keeps us, keeps in view... The reality, and it invites us to keep God in our focus and keep God in our view and keep this reminder in our view. He may go away, but his blessings do not. The mandate over us does not. And we can go into specifics, but again, we're just getting started with this. When we look at our property, our belongings, our possessions, it's all been given to us by God so that we might honor him with it and glorify him with it and serve him and his kingdom with it. And we can take this to a very granular, granular level if you would like to. Because what part of life, when you really think about it, you are made in God's image. What part of your life doesn't fall under the banner of stewardship? Remember when God called Moses? And God, only, the only thing God said for, wanted Moses to do, he said, Moses, I just want you to be a mouthpiece for me. I want you just to be, be, be a mouthpiece. I want you to stand in front of Pharaoh and I want you to let me talk through you. You don't have to come up with your own sermons. This isn't your own work. You're just going to stand there and you're going to be a body for me. Now, he was obviously more involved, but that was the idea of it. And Moses said, no, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't like to talk. And hey, I don't like to talk either. And I put one of these on every week. So you never know where you're going to end up. But you know what God's rationale to Moses was? Who has made man's mouth? Your mouth is not yours, Moses. So you can't tell me, oh, I don't want to do it. Again, that's not, I'm not telling you that. This is God saying, who gave you your mouth? Well, I mean, put it that way. I guess you did. And we can go down the list. Who gave you your eyes? Who gave you your function? Who gave you this life? And, and then God takes it to a more specific level when he gave them the, the promised land in Deuteronomy. Remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth and, and to have anything that you have. This is why the New Testament has so much to say about how you use your words, how you manage your money, how you live your life. It all falls under God's rule. It's about bringing it all under his purview and bringing it all to him and keeping it there and seeing our lives through his lens. You may say, Justin, that's kind of extreme. I mean, you're a little bit radical telling me I need to consider God and his will and his glory in every area of my life from when I open my mouth to when I open my eyes to when I look at my wallet. I mean, you're a little bit extreme and you know, that's part of my deal. I'm a little extreme. That's what I get. That's what I'm called to do, be extreme. I know, but here's the thing. Is it extreme only because it might inconvenience you at times? Is it extreme because it may make you think twice before you do something or not do something? Is it extreme because it may save you from regret? Is it extreme because it may make your life better and make, your li make the lives of those around you better? 
I don't, think, I don't think that's extreme. I don't think you think that's extreme. I think it's just so uncommon and so unnatural that we hear it and we think that's only for insane people. But it's not. It's for people focused on being stewards of their creator and their king's property, belongings. It's for people who understand that Jesus died and his blood purchased us from our sin and how in him we have freedom to live a life that we were meant to live as servants and stewards of God, wherein everything that we've been entrusted with might be leveraged for God. It's where we remember that nothing belongs to us, including our lives, our words, our time, our money, our belongings. They are all from God, and they will return to God. Of course, the reality is that all of our lives look differently from one person to another. It doesn't seem like we have the same things from one, and all of us have different abilities and different capabilities. And this parable considers that. And it makes clear that God will never hold us accountable for somebody else's life. We are responsible for our own lives, not someone else's. It's easy to deflect, but this parable acknowledges that, yes, everyone receives a different lot. But ultimately, no, no matter what, we will answer for how we managed our lot in our life. So there's no comparing, there's no contrasting, there's individual responsibility and personal stewardship. And we can't get away from that. A classic example is when Jesus is trying to get Peter to, to join back after he fell away when he denied him and all that stuff. Jesus is talking to Peter and Peter's uncomfortable because he's reliving that guilt and reliving that shame. And Jesus says, Peter, I just need you to keep your, keep your eyes on me. Peter, if you don't keep your eyes on me, you're going to drift away. If you don't focus on me, you won't serve me. Peter, follow me. And Peter's trying to deflect it and trying to get away from it. So Peter looks around and he sees somebody behind him. It's John, the disciple. And he says, hey, well, what about this guy? Why don't you tell him what to do? And Jesus, when Peter saw him and said, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus says, if it's my will that he remains, shall I come? What's it to you? Don't worry about his life. You follow me. Man, that's hard, isn't it? We sit in church and we hear a sermon about what we should do and we think about what somebody else isn't doing, right? You're thinking about what your neighbor isn't doing, what your children should be doing, what your husband and wife should be doing, what the person beside you should be doing, right? That's our nature, right? Oh, well, man, you know, I know I don't do what I should do, but have you heard about my husband, right? Or my, you know, I'm using me as an example, right? Have you heard about my neighbor? I mean, this guy, I mean, he's not in church right now. I mean, hey, well, look at me. I, and I, I know, I know, I know. I don't care about them, though. I care about you, Right? I'm not preaching to someone that's not here. And God is wanting to help you. And, and, and Peter said, oh, what about this guy? I mean, talk to him, Jesus. You mean the one that's following me? Peter, follow me. So the question remains, what are you doing with what you've been given? Our lives are borrowed from God. How are we following his plan? Notice something important here in verse 16 through 18. It says, when he who had received the five, he went and traded and made another five. The one received two, gained two more, but then there's one that received one and he went and, hit, he went and hit it. The idea here is that often what God gives us is a kernel of potential. In many ways, God sets our lives in motion and he gives us capability and it's in our pursuit of him that we realize that potential that we grow in our potential because he started out with five and two and then that one guy produced 10 and the other guy produced four and one guy didn't produce any. And again, this isn't about money, but this is the example that God's given us that they, they made investments and they grew interest. But you and I have potential 
that we have to realize by honoring and pursuing God and realizing the gifts and the skills he's given us that we have been called to serve him with. That's why it's important that you bring what you have to God because you don't know what to do with what you have. I know this might step on some political nerves but in, all, in all different nerves that we have, but I know you worked for it. I know you built it. I know you earned it. But can I be nice to you? You don't know what to do with it. Unless you bring it to God and say, God, what do I do with this? You may have been smart enough to earn it. You may have been hard enough of a worker to get it. You may have worked and did everything to get your hands on it. But unless you bring it to God and say, God, this is from you and it's for you, what do I do with it? You will mismanage it. We will mismanage it. I will mismanage it. If there's an area of your life that you wonder, should I serve God here? Can I serve God here? You'll never know unless you ask God what to do with it here. This parable makes it clear that there's no area of life in which this question shouldn't be asked. Look at verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts. You know what that means? After a long time, it means after a lifetime. If you want to know what the long time is, it's your life. This is a parable about your life beginning to end. None of us know our due date, our return date, our expiration date. We just know that every day is an opportunity to serve God as a good steward of this borrowed life. Now, two of the three servants received the same admonition. Look at verse 20. It says, the one who received five came and brought the other five and said, Lord, you entrusted to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more besides them. His Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, the talents, that would have been a lot of money. Years worth of labor, of wages. And you know what God says about that stuff? That's just change. You haven't even tapped into what I've got in store for you. The same thing is said to the one who brought two. You've been faithful, verse 23, you've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I love that phrase, joy of your master, joy of the Lord. Because here's the thing. In this life, we can experience a lot of joy while we serve. We have a capacity to enjoy this life. God gives us that. But he categorizes this life as just service. And he doesn't even mention joy until you bring in the next life. So if we can experience joy now, how much more joy awaits us when our service is complete? You don't know, do you? What may be on the line if we fail to serve well? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark about that. Verse 24. He had received the one talent, came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look here, there, have what was yours. But his Lord answered and said, You wicked and lazy or slothful servant. You knew I would reap where I had not sown and gather where I had not scattered seed. You ought to at least deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own interest. At least, if you want to get technical about this, hey, you could have at least put it in a CD or whatever. It's a lot of money. 
Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and, him, and he will have an abundance. But for him who does not have, even when he ha- what he has will be taken away. Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, or darkness outside, where there is weeping and gnashing. Of the teeth. Now, let me attempt to frame this in the way that I think Jesus would have wanted his original audience to hear it and the way I think he would want us to hear it. I don't think, thought about this a lot, prayed about this a lot, studied this a lot for years and years and years. I do not think that the last verse there is talking about hell. When Jesus talks about hell, he's never vague about it. He talks about eternal judgment, eternal loss, fire, brimstone. Read the next chapter. Read previous chapters. When he talks about hell, he doesn't dance around it. He specifically says hell, eternal judgment, eternal uh, loss, eternal fire. He makes it very clear. Hey, this this is what happens if you're not saved. I think it's easy to make this last verse refer to hell because that removes us from worrying about it, doesn't it? Oh, I'm saved. I'm going to worry about that. And it makes us not have to consider this. But this parable was told to servants who were aware that they were called by God and made to serve him. Could this be referring to an unsaved person? Maybe. But I think it's just as much speaking to a saved person who wants the gift of salvation but fails to consider that every other thing in their life is a gift too. The Bible makes it very clear. Christians and non-Christians don't face the same judgment. They're separate judgments. So in this story, there is one judgment where three people are at the same judgment. I don't think this is some sort of double separate judgment. It's clear these are people in the family of God given an account for how they serve God with their life. So that's the question. What does verse 30 mean then? In the ancient world, cities were built especially capital cities, kingdom cities, in a circular fashion. A palace at the center and those dwelling in the center of the city, those dwelling around the palace and the inner circle benefited from the palace festivities and security and there was great joy in the center of the city. There was great joy those who lived in their master's vicinity. But there were walls of protection around the city. There were lamps in this, on the city walls fashioned to illuminate the city within. But those outside the city walls were left in the dark. Jesus envisions a city where his servants enjoy life close to the throne and the joy of their master. He makes it clear beyond that circle, beyond those walls, is an eternity of less joy, a place where the light isn't as bright, a place of intense regret. Weeping and gnashing of teeth doesn't mean pain. It means sorrow. It means regret. It means frustration. It means brokenness. It means I missed my chance. I'd love for this to be about hell because I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> this, when you talk about it that way, it makes me feel a little bit of pressure because this is talking about me and you. Jesus is intentionally vague on the subject. I think he's vague because he wants to sit up straighter. And I think he wants us to soberly consider the way we're living our lives. You know what this forces us to do? It forces us to answer the question, what kind of steward are we? We studied this a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 3. You can read this passage where it says that all of us will give an account for the life that we live. 
And there are those that will be saved, but they will be saved as through fire, suffering some loss. Again, Paul's very vague about it because he wants us to lean in. You know what God is never vague about? Your life is not your own. They're on loan from God. We're called to serve him in every area of them. Jesus bought us back so that we might awaken to our accountability and maximize our responsibility. The Bible leaves no stone unturned how we should use our time, how we should use our possessions, how we can conduct our lives. But for now, the question is, what kind of steward are you? A faithful one or a slothful one? There's two kinds in the story, right? Thou good and faithful servant or thou wicked and slothful servant. Are you pursuing God's intent for what he's loaned to you? Are you following his lead so that, he might, that you might honor him? Have you been viewing it all as yours or have you been careless about it? Today, we could, should consider the stewardship God has given us. How are we managing this life that came from him, the people he's put in them, the things he's given us? How are we managing this life? It came from him. It belongs to him. It's going to return to him. And we will have an eternity forever colored by what kind of steward we were. What will it be for you? Thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Or thou wicked and slothful servant. That's a question that we should consider. Every word you speak, everything you do, it matters. You're a steward of a life on loan from God. Jesus died to buy you back from sin, to give you a life of meaning, a life of redemption, a life of value and purpose. You do not have to hide behind or remain behind the sin that causes you to forget and believe the lie that you don't answer to anybody. You've been set, you can be saved from that. You can be redeemed from that. You can be made new from that. But if you're a Christian and you already know that, but you still look at your life as, hey, it's mine or I don't even care, that's not gonna fly when it comes to the kingdom of God. So maybe today's the day you bring your life to God and say, God, I've not been a good steward over this. I've not been faithful over this. I've been slothful over it. What do I do with it? It's yours. You could take it from me if you wanted to. One day you will. But until that, I want to use it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this sobering invitation to remember that our lives are on loan, our lives are borrowed. We are stewards over this life. The way we treat each other, the way we serve or don't serve each other, the choices we make that affect others and affect ourselves, the choices we make that impact your kingdom, it all matters because it all belongs to you. From the words to the possessions, we belong to you. We are on loan from you. God, we want to give it all back to you and honor you with it. Lord, if there's somebody that wants to repent of wasting, that wants to come back to you and say, God, I want to dedicate it all back to you. I want to serve you with it. Lord, let them come to you and find that peace and that reconciliation. If there's somebody just wondering, hey, what do I do with this? May today be the day they begin to gain clarity and begin to understand the life that you've given them and the purpose you've given it for.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.